Bridge Builder Part Two, Part Nineteen of Careers of Danger and Daring. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffett. Not that day, but later on when I had arranged it, I accepted this bluff invitation and became acquainted with the boys, the ones who never die, and took in the fears and wonders of the bridge at closer view. My permit was granted on the express understanding that I hold nobody responsible for any harm that might befall. I was fortunate in having with me as companion in this climb Mr. Varian, the artist who had faced perils of many sorts, but none like these. First we clambered, pyramid fashion, up the pile of granite, big as a church that would hold the cable ends. They call it the anchorage. From the top of this we could look along the iron street that stretched away in a slight upgrade toward the tower. We were on a level with the roadway of the bridge, and far below us spread the housetops of Brooklyn. Between our stone precipice and the iron street end yawned a gulf that we drew back from, with water in its deepest bottom. Here the cables would be buried some day, sealed and cemented, piled over with masonry to hold for centuries. Standing in the lee of a block that kept off the wind, we looked across at the bridge and planned how presently we might reach it by skirting the moat walls and drawing ourselves up at yonder corner where the end span rested. Somehow, seen from here, the iron street looked delicate, not massive. Its sides were trellis-work, its top frames gently slanting, and one could fancy the whole thing beautifully grown over with vines, a graceful arbor way suspended in mid-air. And down the length of this came the strangest sounds, one would say a company of woodpeckers of some giant sort making riot in an echoing forest. Brrrup, brrrup, brrrup. What was it? Now from this side, up, 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 brrrup, and again abruptly. Then straight away from near the top of the other side, ap-ap-ap-brap, then fainter from halfway down the street, and then from all points at once, a chorus of hammer-birds making the bridge resound in call and in answer, hummer-birds with strokes as swift as the roll of a drum. What is it? And look, those points of fire that glow forth here and there and vanish as the eye perceives them, tiny red lights, tiny yellow lights that flash from far down the iron street and are gone that flash from all along the iron street and are gone what are they what strange work is doing here it was the riveters driving the endless red-hot bolts that hold the bridge together driving them with hammers that you work with a trigger and aim like a fireman's hose hammers with rubber pipes dragging behind them that feed in compressed air from an engine long past are the days when bolts are driven by brawny arms and the slow swing of a sledge now the workman, leaning his stomach against an iron club, touches a spring, and presto, the hard-kicking pent-up air inside drives the darting club head back and forth, back and forth, quick as a snake strikes, brrrp, against whatever the steering arms may press it. Driving rivets nowadays is something like handling a rapid fire gun, and how your body aches from the bruise of that coil. We must get nearer to those fellows, said the artist and presently, after some mild hazards, we were safely over on the span, quite as near as was desirable to a gang of riveters dangling twenty feet above us on a swing. For presently, with a sputter of white sparks, a piece of red-hot iron struck the girder we were straddling, and then went bounding down. Down. Nice, hospitable place, this, remarked the artist as we edged under cover of a wide steel beam. Crouching here, we watched another gang of riveters on the structure opposite, 
where we had a better view, watched the forgemen pass along the glowing rivets, and the buffer man slip them through ready holes, and the hammer man flatten the flaming ends into smooth burnished heads, and presently a riveter in a black cap and faded blue jersey came down from the swing overhead and explained things to us. He did this out of sheer good nature, I think, although he may have been curious to know what two men with derby hats and kodaks were doing up there. We watched his descent in wonder and alarm, for it involved some lively gymnastics that he entered upon, however with complete indifference. First he swung across from the scaffold into a girder, the highest rail of the bridge, and along this walked as coolly as a boy on a wide fence-top, only this happened to be a fence one hundred and fifty feet high. Then he bent over and caught one of the slanting side-supports, and, and down this worked his way as a mountain-climber would work down the precipice. Presently he stepped off at our level, never having taken the pipe from his mouth. When we asked how he dared go about so carelessly over a reeling abyss, he said they all did it. They all got used to it or else got killed. Why, when the whistle blew, we'd see men swinging and sliding and twisting their way down like a lot of circus performers. That's how they came to dinner. That's how they got back aloft. No, sir, they couldn't use lifelines. They moved about too much. Besides, what good would a lifeline be to a man if the fall started at him with a ten-ton load? Yes, or a twenty-ton load. That man has got to skip along pretty lively, sir, or he'll get hurt. Did he mean skip along over this web of boards and girders? I inquired. He certainly did, and we'd see plenty of it if we stayed up long. The artist and I shook our heads as we looked down that skeleton roadway gaping open everywhere through girders and planks in little gulfs ten feet wide, five feet wide, two feet wide, quite wide enough to make the picture of a man skipping over them a very solemn thing. Our friend went on to tell us how the riveters often get into tight places, say on the tower where there is little room for the forge man to heat his bolts that he has to throw them up to the hammer man twenty or thirty feet. What? exclaimed the artist, throw red-hot bolts twenty or thirty feet up the tower. That's what they do, and we've got boys who are pretty slick at it. They'll grab a bolt out of the fire with long-handled nippers and give her a swing and a twist, and away she goes sizzling through the air straight at the man above. So they don't miss him once in a hundred times, and what's more, they never touch a truss or a girder. If they did, there'd be a piece of red-hot iron sailing down on the lads below, and that wouldn't be good for their health. How does a hammer man catch these red-hot bolts? I asked. In a bucket, catches them every time. That's the thing you want to see, too. There were so many things we wanted to see in this strange region, and presently we set forth down the iron street, keeping in mind the parting caution of the riveter not to look at our feet, but at the way before us and never to look down. As we edged ahead cautiously, no skipping along for us, thanks, but pausing often and holding fast to whatever offered support, we saw that all the bridgemen came over the girders, eyes straight ahead, in a shuffling, flat-footed way without much bend in their knees. Look, there comes one of them in from the end of a long black arm that pushes out like a bowsprit over the gulf. He has been hanging out there, painting the iron. In the pose of his body, he is a tightrope walker. In the hitch of his legs, he is a convict. In the blank stare of his face, he is a somnambulist. Really, he is nothing so complicated but an everyday bridge man earning a hard living, and his wife would be torn with fears could she see him now. Presently, we came to the busiest scene on the structure, down where the covered part ended and the iron roadway reached on, bare of framework to the tower. Here the traveller was working with a double gang of men, raising a skeleton of sides and cross-beams that were pushing on, pushing on day by day, and would finally stretch across the river. 
Once on the traveller's deck we breathed easier, for here we were safe from fearsome crevasses, safe on a great wide raft of iron and timber set on double railroad tracks, a lumber and steam giant that goes resounding along when the need is, with its weight of four locomotives, its three-story derrick swinging out great booms at the corners, its thumping niggerhead engines, two of them, for the hoisting, its coal bins, its water tanks, its coils of rope, its pile of lumber, and its mascot kitten, curled up there by the ash-box in a workman's coat. They say the bridge has to wait when the kitten wants her dinner, and woe to the man who would treat the little thing unkindly. This traveller with its gangs is a sort of gigantic sewing machine that stitches the bridge together. It lifts all the parts into place and binds them fast as it were with basting threads of temporary iron to hold until the riveters arrive for the permanent sewing. Five or six tons in the weight of ordinary pieces handled by the traveller, but some pieces weigh twenty tons, and on a pinch forty tons could be managed, the weight of six elephants like Jumbo. Of course, when I say that the traveller stitches these pieces together, I really mean that the traveller gangs do this, for the big brute booms can only lift things and swing things, the bolt driving and end fitting must be done by little men. When we arrived, the traveller was bringing to one spot the massive parts of a cross-section in our arbor way. It was a stretched-out iron W flattened down between girders across top and bottom. This, we learned, was a strut, and it weighed sixteen tons, and it would presently be lifted bodily overhead to span the roadway. We waited a full hour to see this thing done, to watch another stitch taken in the bridge, and it seems to me, as I think of it, that I can recall no hour when I saw so many perils faced with such indifference. First, the booms would drop down their clanking jaws and grip the chain-bound girders from little delivery cars, then swing them around to the lifting place at the further end of the traveller. Now we understood what our friends down the way meant by skipping along lively when the falls come at you. He meant this boom tackle and its load as they sweep over the structure in blind, merciless force. And indeed they did skip along the bridgemen as the traveller turned its arms this way and that, and several times I saw a man slip as he hurried and barely save himself. A single misstep might mean the crush of a ten-ton mass or a plunge into space or both. It seemed a pretty shivery choice. One of our boys got hit this morning, said a man. Hit by the falls? Yes, he tried to dodge, but his foot caught somehow, and he got it hard right here. He touched his thigh. It flattened him out, just over there, where that man's making fast the load. Was he badly hurt? Pretty bad, I guess. He couldn't get up and load him in a coal box with a runner. That's a single line. You see, it's very easy to take a wrong step. Presently somebody yelled something, and this man moved away to his task, but we were joined almost immediately by another bridge-man who told us how they ride the big steel columns from the ground clear to the cap of the tower. Two men usually ride on a column, their duty being to keep her from bumping against the structure as she lifts, and then bolt her fast when she reaches the top. Of course, as the tower grows in height, these rides become more and more terrifying, so that some of the men who are equal to anything else draw back from riding up a column. These fears were justified just at the last on a New York tower, and a man named Jack McGregor had an experience that might well have blanched his hair. They had reached a 325-foot level and were placing the last lengths of column but one, and McGregor was riding up one of these lengths alone. It was a huge mass, 25 feet long, square in section, and large enough to admit a winding ladder inside. It weighed 18 tons. As the overhead boom lifted the pendant length, 
with MacGregor aside, and swung it clear of the column it was to rest on, the foreman watched there like a hawk, wiggled his thumb to the signal man on a platform below, who pulled four strokes on the bell, which meant boom up to the engine man. So up came the boom, and in came the column, hanging now in true perpendicular, with MacGregor ready to slide down from his straddling seat for the bolting. Now the foreman flapped his hand palm down, and the signal man was just about to jerk two bells, which means lower your load, when rip! smash tear far down below a terrible thing had happened the frame of the engine had snapped right over the bearing and out pulled the cable drum that was holding the strain of that eighteen-ton column and down came the falls it was just like an elevator breaking loose at the top of its shaft the column started to fall there was nothing to stop it and then and then a miracle was worked it must have been a miracle it was so extraordinary that falling column struck squarely and to end on the solid column beneath it rocked a little righted itself and stayed there which was more than jack mcgregor did for he came sliding down so fast he came with a wild white face that he all but knocked the foreman over and the foreman was white himself and what that eighteen-ton column would have done to the bridge and the boys on it had it crashed down those three hundred and twenty-five feet is still a subject of awed discussion all this time a dozen men had been swarming over the struts, hammering bolts, tightening nuts, hitching fast the falls, making sure that all parts are rigid and everything ready for the lifting. At the front of the traveller two foremen, pushers they are called, yelled without ceasing, Hey, Gus! Hey! Hey, Jimmy! Put that winch in! Slack away them falls! What the mischief are you doing? Hey! Hey! And they shake their heads and dance on their toes for all the world like a pair of mad auctioneers. The men work faster under this vigorous coaching. Four or five are stretched flat on their stomachs along the top girder, as many more cling to steep slanting braces, and some hang fast to the uprights, with legs twisted around them like Japanese pole-climbers. No matter what his position, every man plies a tool of some sort, wrench, chisel, or sledge, and presently all is ready. Now the nigger heads start with a pounding and sputtering that makes the bridge quiver. The big spools haul fast on the ropes the falls stiffen the booms creak and with shouts from everyone the strut heaves and lifts and hangs suspended the pushers yell at the nigger heads to stop the men swarm over the load studying every joint then wave that all is well and come sliding twisting down just as the engines start again all but two men who sit at the ends and ride along with the hoist meantime the others are racing up the side frames from slant to slant to the top of the truss where they wait eagerly yelling a while at the points on either side where presently the strut ends must be adjusted and then bolted fast it seemed like some mad schoolboy game of romps now we'll all swing over this precipice whoop la now we'll all run across this gulf wow 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 every man in that scrambling crew is facing two deaths or three deaths and doing hard work besides Look. There comes a strut up to its place and nearly crushes Jimmy Dunn with its sharp edge as a strut did crush another lad not so long ago. And see that man hang out in a noose of a rope, hang out over nothing and drive in bolts, and see this fellow kick off on the free pulley block and come sliding down. And there are the others jumping at the falls after him and coming down after a rush, laughing, risking their lives. One would say they never thought of it. Why, that's nothing, said one of them. We used to slide down the falls from the top of the tower. But you've got to know the trick or the ropes will burn through your trousers. It's a great slide, though. Aren't you ever afraid of falling? I asked a serious-faced young man who was running one of the nigger heads. I'll tell you how it is, said he. 
We're not afraid when a lot of us do a thing together, but each one might be afraid to do it alone. In our hearts, I guess we're all afraid. Ever have an accident yourself? No, he said, but... He hesitated and then explained that he had been standing near the day Chick Chandler fell from the Brooklyn Tower. It hadn't been a nice thing to see him. Finally, I got the story. Chandler, it seems, was the first man killed on the bridge, and he died for a jest. He was working that day on the 110-foot level. He was an experienced man and counted sure of foot. He had begun to sprinkle, and the men were looking about their raincoats when Chandler, in a spirit of mischief, started across Gerda for an oil skin that belonged to a comrade. And so interested was he in his little prank that he forgot prudence, perhaps forgot where he was, and the next second he was falling, and presently there was a shock of impact far below, and then a red number one was branded on the ugly black bridge. End of the Bridge Builder Part 2 Recording by Ashley Jane